You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. singing Christmas songs for our worship. We're, I'm not preaching anything Christmassy, so turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, and we're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And when you've found your place there, we'll bow our heads and pray before we begin to study God's Word. John, chapter 4. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that as we begin to study your word, we have entered upon sacred ground. Your word is where you speak to us, where you reveal yourself to us. All that is necessary for life and for godliness you have revealed within the pages of this book. We thank you that it does not change, that your word abides forever. We call out to you and ask that you would bless our time and our study and our looking at your word. May we find in here you to be the deepest longing of our soul and the greatest satisfaction for that longing. We may, be, may we be satisfied in you. We ask this, that you would feed us today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John chapter 4, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in the Gospel of John, so I'll just step back and take a couple of moments just to quickly review and sort of bring us up to speed because we stopped basically right in the middle of a lecture by Jesus to his disciples or a teaching time that Jesus was giving to his disciples in John 4. We're looking at verses 31 through verse 38, and we got to the end of verse 35 last time. And this conversation takes place between Jesus and his disciples. They are alone. The disciples had gone into the town to buy food, brought it back out to the Lord, and just as they arrived, the woman with whom Jesus had been speaking for all of those previous verses left and went into the town, to Sychar, to tell the people in the city, come see a man who has told me all the things that I have ever done. Could this be the Christ? And the people started coming out of the village to see if indeed this one was the Christ. In the meantime, Jesus' disciples had shown up and they were, uh, they had brought back the food that Jesus had sent them into the town to purchase. And on their mind was not telling people about the Christ. On their mind was not ministry. On their mind was really not anything super spiritual at all. They were thinking about lunch, food. They had arrived in Samaria hungry and thirsty, stopped at the well, gone in to buy food, came back out with the food, presented the food to Jesus. Rabbi, eat. Jesus, knowing that he needed to prepare the disciples for the arrival of the people from the city, needed to prepare the disciples to minister to those people and to share the truth with those people and to prepare the disciples for the spiritual harvest that they were about to reap. So Jesus used the food as a platform to begin to teach the disciples about real priorities, being ministry and not food. And he said to the disciples, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now the disciples, like the Pharisees in chapter 2 in the temple, and like Nicodemus in chapter 3, and like the woman earlier in chapter 4, the disciples did not understand the spiritual import of what Jesus was saying. The disciples were thinking in purely literal, physical terms. Who brought him food to eat? Did you bring him food? I didn't bring him any food. Did somebody stop by and bring him food? They thought Jesus had food from some other source. And that's when Jesus said, no, you guys don't understand. Food for me, the true satisfaction of my deepest longing is to be involved in doing the will of my God and Father. 
Jesus' goal, His satisfaction, His deepest longing was not physical food, not literal water, but to be involved in ministry and to do what the Father had sent Him to do, which was to gather in His sheep, to seek and to save that which was lost, which is exactly what He had done in the case of the woman. And all Jesus was saying was, I find doing the will of God to be my primary aim, and when I am involved in that, all of my physical concerns be they for food or for water or for sleep or whatever might be pressing upon his humanity, all of those things faded into the background and became non-issues as long as he was doing what God had sent him to do. And that's what he had done with the woman. Now that brings us to the end of verse 35. Oh, there was a rebuke in verse 35. Remember when Jesus said, there's a saying or proverb among you, with four months and then comes the harvest. And remember I told you what that proverb meant. It was a proverb that, kind of like what we say, Rome wasn't built in a day. Relax. Take it easy. We've got time. There's no hurry. There's no need to get up and bothered about this whole issue. Just relax and take your time. That's what the proverb was intended to communicate. They would plant the seeds and they would say, four months till the harvest. Sit back and relax. Take your time. No hurry. No need to be involved in anything. We've got a little bit of a break. And as true as that might be in the physical realm with a physical harvest, it doesn't apply at all. And it is not true when it comes to the spiritual realm and the spiritual harvest. That's why Jesus said, you have this saying, four months until the harvest, but you don't understand, the harvest is now, right now. Not four months from now, not a week from now, not a day from now, not even an hour from now. The harvest is now. And so what Jesus was communicating to his disciples was, you need to have an urgency, an urgency about the task that is in front of you. And I think you and I find ourselves in similar digs often, when we really don't have the urgency that we ought to have, and all of the things of life that consume us, that ought not to consume us, they do. And we get involved in those things and we're not thinking in spiritual terms. We're not thinking in terms of ministry. We're not thinking in eternal dimensions. We're thinking instead purely in the physical realm. And we need to be reminded, look, there is a task ahead of us and we ought to have a sense of urgency about obeying and about doing what God has called us to do. That brought us to the end of verse 35. Now we pick it up in verses 36 and we'll go all the way through the end of verse 38 this morning. If my voice holds out. I have in my pocket a cough drop just in case it doesn't. And if uh, after the cough drop my voice fails again, then we're done for today, whether we get to the end of verse 38 or not. So verses 36 through verse 38, and in those verses, Jesus gives to his disciples three things that ought to serve as a motivation and an encouragement to them. Three things. The beginning of verse 36, that the opportunities are passing. Notice what Jesus says. Already he who reaps is receiving wages, and is gathering fruit for life eternal. The second thing that should motivate us is that the reward is certain. Look at the end of verse 36. We are gathering, the he who reaps is receiving wages, and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice together. And then in verses 37 and 38, the third thing that should motivate us is the very nature of spiritual work itself, the very nature of the task in which we are engaged. Look at verse 37. In this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now, these are three things that should motivate us. First, the fact that the opportunities are passing. Look at the very beginning of verse 36 and notice Jesus' words. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit. Already. You say, wait, we have four months till the harvest. No sense to get all anxious about it. No sense to overdo it. Let's not do today what we can put off till tomorrow. Tomorrow there will be lost sinners to witness to. 
Tomorrow there will be lost relatives to communicate the truth to. Tomorrow will be opportunities to serve the Lord. Let's just relax today. We have today. Let's relax today. We'll put it off till tomorrow. And then guess what happens? Tomorrow comes and what do we say to ourselves? Tomorrow we have opportunity to share the truth. Tomorrow my unsaved relatives will be there to witness to. Tomorrow I'll have opportunity to use my gifts in service to the king. And then that tomorrow comes and guess what? There's always another tomorrow. Always another tomorrow. And we can always justify not getting involved. And that's the reproof to the disciples. You say four months till the harvest. But the harvest is now. The fields are white. Look at your eye. Lift up your eyes and look around you rather than right where you're standing. And you will see that the opportunities are there. In verse 36, already he who reaps is gathering fruit for eternal life. Already people are involved in the harvest. Now you're going to notice all the way through the passage that the harvest terminology is used. You see references in verse 36, 37, and 38 to the harvest, to reaping, to sowing, to the one who reaps, to the one who sows. Is this whole analogy that Jesus is unfolding for the disciples. They had mentioned food, and he begins with the, the analogy of the harvest, and actually goes back to that first prover- proverbial saying, four months and then comes the harvest, this is what you say. And then the rest of the passage is the development of that harvest analogy. There are those who reap, and there are those who sow, and so the whole passage is, is ripe, pun intended, ripe with this harvest analogy terminology. As Jesus begins to flesh this out, you need to understand that there is a harvest that is to be engaged in, and you and I right now are in the midst of that harvest. Already, some are reaping and gathering in fruit for eternal life. Now, the disciples, at Jesus' time, back back in those days, everybody, whether they were involved in agriculture or farming, everybody in that community, a very agrarian culture, a very agrarian society, they understood harvest terminology. And even those who didn't make their living off of the land and those who weren't involved in farming, whose sustenance had nothing to do with bringing in a harvest, they understood what it meant to live off of the land and to live off of the harvest. While Deidre and I were in, while I was in fourth year in Bible college, we lived up in northern Saskatchewan. Technically, it's not northern Saskatchewan, but we consider it northern Saskatchewan because people don't dare go too much further north. But it's actually central or a part of southern Saskatchewan because Saskatchewan goes on for days to the north, and it eventually goes to start turning south again. It goes so far north. So what we call northern Saskatchewan is actually technically southern Saskatchewan. So we were as far north as we wanted to be, and up there it is wheat fields and canola fields and pea fields and barley fields as far as the eye can see. And in Saskatchewan, that's a long ways. And the farmers in that church that I served in up there and that we were part of, there were a lot of farmers in that church, and a lot of the community made their living off of two things, the oil fields and the wheat fields. And I was amazed in getting to know some of the farmers and the people who lived and perished by how well the land did and how well the harvest did. Those people understand the urgency of the harvest because they live on that. And their whole summer and early fall is spent preparing for the harvest. You say waiting for the harvest. Well, yeah, in one sense they're waiting for the harvest, but in another sense they're making sure that the people are lined up and the equipment is ready to go and the fuel is purchased and all of that. But when harvest comes and the canola or the wheat or the barley or the rye or whatever it is that they've got out in the fields, when the harvest is ready, they get on the harvest. And I'll tell you something, those people do not get off the stick until the harvest is all done. And they live in those combines. And they are in the combine from before the time that the sun comes up until long after the rest of their world has gone to sleep. And they eat in those combines, sometimes they sleep in those combines, 
And I knew a guy who basically sat in the combine 24 hours a day for the entire harvest, two, two and a half weeks that it took to harvest. And he ate in that combine and he slept in that combine. They brought his food out to him and he took what you and I would consider to be a nap. And those naps came while the, the trucks were taking off the barley and the wheat and hauling them away to the granaries. Those people understand the harvest. And they, when the harvest is ripe, they work and they work and they work until the harvest is done. Because they know that if they sit back and say, tomorrow, guess what's going to happen? Tomorrow comes, and then a tomorrow comes, and then another tomorrow comes, and pretty soon the harvest is rotted and has fallen away. Now, friends, the same thing is true in our day, in our realm. Already there are people who are reaping. Look around you. There are people who do the work of witnessing and evangelizing and sharing Christ and serving the Lord and involved in the harvest. Already there are people around us who are involved in the harvest. And if you're not harvesting and if you're not serving, it is only because you have not looked up and seen the desperate need for people who will stand for the truth and love the truth, proclaim the truth and serve the Lord and use their time, their talents and their treasure for the honor and glory of the King. But while you sleep, others around you are very busy. And they're reaping and they're gathering in fruit for eternal life. Do you see Jesus' analogy? Already the harvest is on. And already people are involved in it. And they're gathering in fruit for a life eternal. And they're receiving wages for life eternal. Kind of an enigmatic phrase. And I, I think Jesus is talking about the reward that exists, the reward that awaits those involved in the harvest, involved in serving the Lord in evangelism, and discipleship, and in using their time and their talents and their treasure for the Lord. There is a reward that is awaiting those, and it is receiving wages and fruit for life eternal. And maybe that's what Paul was referring to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he said to the Thessalonian church, you are my joy, and you are my crown, and you are our crown of rejoicing. It's people. It's people. The wages are not necessarily gold and monetary things in heaven. The wages, the fruit that we bring in, is people. And if you're involved in the harvest, then you're gathering in fruit for eternal life. But if you're not, listen, already there are people involved in it and they're stealing your opportunities because the opportunities are passing. And like the disciples, while we sit around and we're thinking about our food and our drink and our houses and our 401ks and our retirement and what we're doing today and tomorrow and the other things and how to entertain ourselves and keep ourselves blinded to the realities around us, while we're involved in that, guess what? People are living and people are dying without Christ. And others are involved in the harvest and others are bringing it in. That's why it's urgent. The opportunities are passing us by. And every day that passes by is an opportunity that you lose that you will never get back again. Consider this, friends. In heaven, there is no harvest to be brought in. What is the harvest season? It's right now. It's right now. It's not tomorrow. It's not last week. It's right now. This is the harvest season. And like a farmer who lives off the land, you and I should be looking at this season, this 80 years that the Lord has given to us and said, and saying, you know what? I want to be involved and I want to be serving the Lord and I want to be bringing in the harvest and evangelizing and discipling and sharing and preaching and proclaiming the gospel in whatever form I can because I've only got this brief window of time. And in heaven, there is no harvest to bring in. The heaven is the granary. The harvest is already there. You don't go to the granary to bring in a harvest. In heaven, you may have all the answers, but there's not going to be anybody asking any questions. In heaven, there might be, you might have all of the truth, but there's not going to be anybody there to share it with. Because the harvest is here and the harvest is now. And once you die, 
That's it. You are removed from the harvest fields. There's, there's nothing else to bring in. You've had your opportunity. You've had your time. It's come. It's gone. It's passed. You stepped onto the scene. Whatever it is that you did, that's what you did. And that's what eternity holds for you. You see how urgent this is? You don't wait till heaven to begin to serve the Lord in evangelism and discipleship because there's nobody there to evangelize or disciple. You'll be unnecessary. Evangelists will be out of work. This is the harvest field. And the opportunities are passing you by. The days are short. The days are evil. They're coming to a close. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now here is the place to serve the Lord and get involved in the harvest. You sense that urgency? You involved in that? Or are you too concerned about other things? Well, that should be the first thing that should motivate us, the fact that the opportunities are passing us by. And when your life comes to a close, that's it. You're out of the harvest. No more opportunity to bring in the harvest. The second motivating factor is at the end of verse 36, and that is that the reward is certain. The reward is certain. Look at the end of verse 36. The person reaping is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. When you are involved in the harvest and preaching the gospel and proclaiming truth and and seeking to lead people to, to faith in Christ and telling other people about him, and the context is evangelism. That's what I'm primarily talking about, evangelism. I'm not talking about areas of service where we sweep the floors and set up chairs and take down chairs. Those things are necessary. But in the context, we're talking about evangelism, sharing the gospel, telling other people, come see a man who's told me all the things that I've ever done. This could not be the Christ, could it? And sharing the good news with other people. When you are engaged in those activities and you are using your time, talents, and treasure in the service of the king, you are in the process of reaping and receiving wages and gathering in a reward. Now, here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing about the reward, is, and it's certain, it's a certain reward, and I believe that God is going to be generous with his servants. But here's the amazing thing. God has chosen to use us, to condescend to our level, and to use us in the proclamation of the gospel. That is an amazing thing to me. Because God could write it in the sky, in the clouds. God could make an audible announcement to all of mankind God could take that message and use the mouth of angels as his messengers and leave us entirely out of it. God could raise up stones to proclaim his truth if he so wanted to. But he has chosen instead to put the eternal gospel of salvation on our lips and to use us as laborers in the harvest to bring in the harvest fields, to call in his sheep, to be used as his spokesman and his mouthpieces for the proclamation of the eternal gospel. That is amazing grace. But then even more amazing than that is the fact that God would reward us for faithfully doing what he has asked us to do and to reward us generously for it. And then to say to us there is an eternal, a eternal reward that awaits those who are reaping. And they are gathering up fruit for eternal life that will be revealed when they finally stand in the kingdom, in the granary, as it were. And then they will see all of the fruit that God brought to pass by that. And God will reward us generously for faithful labor. That's amazing. That he calls us to do it, even though he didn't need to. That he gives us the strength to do it and the opportunities to do it. And he encourages us to do it. And then he says, when you do it, I will use your efforts so that you gather in the harvest fields. And then when the harvest is gathered in, I'll give you the reward for the harvest. 
And at the end of the day, what did you and I really do to deserve any of that? Nothing. That is all of grace. And that reward is certain. And that reward, by the, by the way, my friends, is eternal. Farmers who live off of the land have to sow their seed and reap a harvest every year. And guess what happens if they don't do anything with the harvest? They put all their grain in the granaries and what happens to it? They have to sell it and put it to market or they have to use it or eat it or feed their animal, feed it to their animals because eventually it will rot away and perish. And the next year they have to do the same thing all over again. Every year. They have to renew or reharvest the harvest just to live. And the wages that they get off of each year's harvest over the course of the next year, they get dissolved, they get used up, or they perish. But our reward is not like that at all. The harvest that we are engaged in, when we are engaged in it, and when we are active in it, the fruit and the reward that we receive is eternal. It will never perish. And we're not going to have to go to heaven and reharvest everything all over again just to keep it all fresh. It's going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you are 10,000 years or 10,000 millennia or 10,000 eons into time in eternity, your reward, your fruit, your harvest will be just as real, just as vibrant, just as active, just as rewarding as it has ever been. Now, what is the reward or what is the fruit that Jesus is speaking of? I think we see, I think in the context, you and I can say that it is people They are our joy, our crown of rejoicing. That is the harvest that we're bringing in. We're talking about souls. We're talking about people being brought into the kingdom. So in a sense, our reward is people. In another sense, our Jesus doesn't really develop the whole reward analogy too much, and so I don't want to strain it and develop it beyond that. The first element of it is that it's going to be eternal fruit. Whatever the reward is, it's going to be an eternal reward. I think it will be people, and in some sense, people will be our reward. And guess what? I will be the reward for somebody else. You get that? So you're going to get not only a reward, but you're going to be somebody else's reward. Somebody else is going to be able to rejoice in the fruit of my salvation and my ministry because they were faithful to proclaim the gospel to me. And I'm going to be able to rejoice in what other people have done and what God has done through my own efforts. And I'm the fruit of somebody else's effort. So I'm somebody sowing and I'm somebody's reaping all at the same time. And I'm their reward. A second element of our reward is at the end of verse 36, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now, I think that heaven is going to be a tremendous amount of rejoicing in the reward that we reap by being involved in the harvest. So we get involved in evangelism and discipleship, and we are used by God to bring in a harvest. And at the end of all of that, there is a tremendous amount of rejoicing. Now, if you're a gardener or somebody who likes to garden, as, as I am and I do, then you get at least, I think, a preview or a glimpse of what heaven will be like at the end of every year. So every spring I go out and I till my land and I sow my seed and I water my seed and I watch it and I tend it and I weed it, though not as faithfully as I should, and I watch over it and I brood over it and I spray all my trees and I do everything to get ready. And then I say to myself, about four weeks and then comes the harvest. And up comes my rhubarb, and my rhubarb actually starts to sprout before the snow is even melted. And not too long after that is strawberries, and then blueberries, and then cherries, and then hopefully someday, again, peaches. And then in the fall is all of the the produce out of my garden as I gather that in, and I begin to can it and process it and freeze it, and I enjoy the fruit of it, and I pick it. There is such tremendous satisfaction and rejoicing in that. And I have to wait to see the fruit of my labor, but when I get to taste and give away and enjoy the fruit of my labor... Oh, it is so satisfying. It is so joy-producing. And I rejoice in it. 
And then at the end of the year, when I've taken down all of the plants and I've rolled up all of the hoses and I've spread out all of the manure and tilled my garden for the last time and I get my house and my land all ready for the winter and the trees are trimmed and everything's ready for snowfall, I cannot even describe to you the satisfaction and the joy of knowing that my work for the year is done and I have enjoyed the benefits and the fruit of it. Now, if I were to say to you, it is almost like a narcotic, you would think something ill of me and I don't want to do that. But it is almost like a narcotic. I live for it every year. And I look forward to that satisfaction and that joy. That, I think, is a glimpse of heaven. When we step into eternity and we look at it and we say, the reward is worth every bit of effort in which I have been involved. And I'm satisfied. And I can look at the person who sows. And look at the people who reaped. And the people who watered. And all of us will rejoice together. And there's going to be no competition. Well, hey... I'm the one that sowed that seed. Well, yeah, you might have sowed it, but I reaped it, and I prayed for the reaping of that seed. No competition or jealousy or anything like that. Sowers and reapers able to put their arms around each other and say, look at what God has done. Look at what God has done through our efforts, through our involvement, through our proclamation of the gospel and our stand for truth. Look what the Lord has used and how he has brought in the harvest, the reward, tenfold and fiftyfold and a hundredfold beyond what we ever thought or imagined possible. The certainty of the reward, friends, should motivate you. It should motivate you. There is a third thing, and that is the nature of the spiritual work itself. Not only the fact that the opportunities are passing us by and the reward for our labor is certain, but look at verse 37. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. Now you remember that back in verse 34 or 35 when Jesus said, you say there are yet four months until the harvest. That was a proverbial saying used among farmers of the day. Now Jesus is drawing out another one of their proverbial sayings, and he's saying, but in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. So among farmers, there were these two sort of proverbial sayings that related to the harvest. On the one hand, hey, don't worry, four months till the harvest. Jesus said, no, in some sense, that applies physically to the physical harvest, but in the spiritual realm, that is not true. But in this case, the saying is true. Here is a saying, a proverb that is true. One sows and another reaps. Now, they would use that in their day to describe this. Sometimes a farmer who owned large tracts of land might till the land and get it ready to sow, and then he would hire a crew to sow all of the seed in his field. Then there would be four months until the harvest, and then when harvest time came, he would hire a different crew to go out and reap in the fields. So you might be hired by one farmer to sow the seed and by another farmer to reap a harvest. And so the saying was true, one sows and another reaps. Or the sower might be the farmer himself, but then he might hire a crew of people to come in and do all of the reaping. And in that case, the saying is true. One man sows and another man reaps. Or the farmer might himself go out and sow the seed and intend to bring in the harvest, but die unexpectedly or even expectedly and not be there for the harvest. So his wife or his children or somebody else would come in and reap the harvest. And in that case, the saying was true. One sows and another reaps. In the spiritual realm, It is almost always true, almost always true, that the one who sows is not the same one that reaps. It is almost always, I'm this close from saying 100% of the time, almost always the case that the one who sows is not the same one who reaps. Those two people are almost always different people in the spiritual realm. It is true. One sows and another reaps. Look back at your own life and your own coming to faith in Christ and ask yourself, 
Who was the person who first sowed the seed and who was the person who reaped the seed of the harvest? In my case, there were a hundred people who sowed seeds. One person that reaped the harvest. Now I know who that one person was. His name is Robbie Rosema. And he was a counselor at Kokolol Lake Bible Camp when I trusted Christ. But the people who sowed the seed are some of the people who are sitting in this very congregation who were part of the ministry of Kootenai Community Church before I was ever saved, before I was ever a pastor at this church, who sowed the seed and shared the gospel and taught me adult Sunday school class and shared Christ with me and prayed for me and labored over me and shared the gospel to a a stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-hearted little boy. They sowed the seed. And stumbling onto the scene months and years later was with this teenage boy, Robbie, who never sowed a single seed in my life, who was the one that God used to reap a harvest. In this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. Look at verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Now, who are the others that Jesus has in mind? Who are the ones that had sowed the seed that the disciples were about to harvest? Now, what is the harvest that Jesus is speaking of? He is speaking in this context of the people coming out of the city of Sychar to see if he is indeed the Christ. They're on their way to the well. They may have been able even at that moment to look up and look out over the fields and see the people from the town, the village, coming out to see him at the well. That's the harvest that is coming to the disciples. Now, had the disciples done anything to sow the seed? No. Others had labored. Who had labored for that harvest? Well, we might say that the Old Testament prophets had labored for that harvest. There were prophets who had proclaimed the truth and ministered in that area, northern Israel and southern Israel, over the course of time, sort of laying the way for the Messiah to come, predicting his coming. We might also say that John the Baptist had sown the seed and labored for that field, had he not? Not only in southern Israel, but also in northern Israel, in the regions of Galilee and in Samaria and Judea, John the Baptist had gone out into the wilderness. They had heard of the ministry of John the Baptist, preparing the way of the Lord, announcing the coming of the Messiah, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in the immediate context, who had labored for the harvest that the disciples had just are about to enjoy? Jesus had labored. Where were they? Buying food. Totally missed the opportunity for the harvest. But who else has labored for the harvest that the disciples are about to reap? Who had gone into the city and said to the people of the city, come see a man who told me all the things that I have ever done? The woman. The Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the woman had all labored in that field. The disciples had not labored one whit to sow any seed. They had gone in, bought the food, come back out, and Jesus said, you are about to enter into a harvest that you have done absolutely nothing to deserve or earn or gain. You haven't sown a single seed. You've been consumed with food. Now look up. And they looked up, and all the people were coming out to them. And now they're ready. And now they're ready. So the opportunities pass us by. The reward for our labor is certain, and the nature of spiritual work should be an encouragement to us. Because, see, all of us are called to be both reapers and sowers. And I view it basically as as one thing that we do, and that's gospel proclamation. Sometimes that ends up sowing the seed. Sometimes it ends up reaping a harvest. And you never know going into any conversation or witnessing encounter whether you're going to be sowing seed or reaping a harvest. You never know that. You can never know that. So that ought to encourage you to get involved about the task. Because you might be sowing a seed for somebody else to reap or you might be reaping a harvest 
in a seed in a field that you have never sown any seed before in your life, but you just happen to stumble upon that opportunity where that person is ripe. The opportunity is ripe. It is ready, and God's going to use you to, to bring in the harvest. That's wonderful encouragement. Now, I think the passage before us should encourage us in, in two ways or kind of, I guess, two applications to this. First of all, you and I have a tendency, and I think the church has a tendency, to give undue honor to those who reap the harvest at the expense of those who sow the seed. Do we not? We give undue honor to those who reap the harvest. We think little of those who sow the seed. And I understand why. It is because reaping the harvest is the fun, exciting, and glamorous and upfront work. We look at somebody's ministry and we say there's so many decisions for the Lord. So many key people came forward at the altar call. They've led X number of people to the Lord over the course of the last few years. That person is a gifted speaker, a gifted evangelist. And by the way, I think that one of the reasons that God makes it, um, one of the ways, one of the reasons, say it with me, one of the reasons that God has structured this the way it is so that one sows and another reaps is to keep us humble. To keep us humble. Because if every time I went out to sow a seed, I automatically reaped a harvest, guess what you and I would begin to think if that's the way it worked? We start to think, wow, pretty good at this. I'm quite the gifted communicator, quite the gifted evangelist. Every time I preach a gospel sermon, the people just flood forward in droves. But that's not the way it works. You go out and you sow seed and you sow seed, and I think God gives us just enough of a glimpse of what he's doing with it to encourage our hearts so that we not lose heart. In all of our proclamation or sharing Christ, we see just enough fruit that God sort of encourages us, but doesn't allow us to get humble. And then when we go out and we stumble upon this one opportunity where we happen to be the person to reap it, we're instantly reminded, ha, there's a dozen people that had gone before me who were preparing the heart and sowing the seed, and I just happened to be the guy on the scene who was used by God to do this. It keeps us humble that way. It keeps us humble. But we give undue attention to the person who reaps because that's the glorious and the glamorous work. And we need to always remember, you know, for every person that gets saved, there is at least one, probably dozens, if not hundreds of people who have sown seed in that person's life. And just because you reap the harvest doesn't mean you're an effective individual. Just because you reap the harvest doesn't mean that you're a gifted communicator, a wonderful evangelist, or that God's using you more than anybody else. You might be the person that he used least of all. And the person he really used was the person who was faithful to sow the seed. So you're you're faithful, and you don't give undue attention to the reapers at the expense of the sowers. Second, and here goes my voice. It's just going out of me just now. This is perfect timing. The Lord in eternity is going to give us the joy of seeing who the reapers were and who the sowers were. And this is how I picture eternity. For years, for years, eons, this is what I think is going to be going on. We're going to walk up to somebody and say, you know what, I remember you, and I remember the time that I gave you that tract, that gospel tract. I haven't talked with you since then. What happened in your life? What transpired? that you are here. And they're going to say something like this. Well, I read the gospel tract and I tossed it away. But the words were in my head and I couldn't get them out of my head. And this lady was praying for me. And that man over there, he shared Christ with me at work. And that person over there, she gave me another gospel tract. And this family that you see over here, they invited our family to Awana. And then we started coming to church. And that guy over there in the corner sitting down with nothing else to do now. He was the he was the pastor of the church, and he preached the gospel sermon. And I heard the gospel from him. And that deacon in that church took us out to lunch after the sermon and shared the gospel with us. And that family faithfully prayed for us for five years 
until finally, at work, a guy walked in and I found out he was a believer. I had a conversation with him over lunch and that's when God regenerated my heart, caused me to be born again, and I trusted Christ for salvation. And then guess what's going to happen? We're all going to get together. We're going to hug each other and rejoice because that's the nature of the harvest. There have to be sowers and there have to be reapers. So you and I ought to be motivated and encouraged because the opportunities are passing us by. The reward is certain and the nature of spiritual work should motivate us to get out and to use our time, our talents, and our treasure in the service of the king while we have opportunity and not to let this opportunity pass us by. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful to you that you have encouraged us in your word, that you have called us to serve you. We thank you that though we are unworthy servants at best, that you continue to use us and you choose to use us, that you condescend to do so and that you've called us to be involved in this great work of gospel proclamation and laboring in your harvest fields. We thank you that others have sown. We thank you that you have watered, that you have caused the growth, that you are the one who ultimately brings in the harvest using faithful servants to reap that harvest. We do look forward to eternity when we will see all of the fruit and all of the reward for every last bit of effort that we have uh, put forth in the furtherance of your gospel and your kingdom. And we know that not one cup of cold water given in your name will go unrewarded. So we thank you for the certainty of that, what we can look forward to. We pray, O oh God, that you would open our eyes to see the opportunities and cause us to walk in your ways and to be obedient to what you have called us to do. Give us grace to do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.